Well, good evening. Uh, I do want to say thank you for that nice introduction. Obviously, one of the two of us is smarter than the other. <laughs> and that's why there's a doctor by his name and a doctor by his name. And, and we, in fact, did uh, uh, spend, you were there for four months while we were there. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Johannes and myself spent nearly the entire year of deployment together, 11 months. Uh, and so it's really a homecoming to get everybody back together. Uh, I want to thank you all for coming out, kind of sparse. It's a very cold evening, but I see some friends who've come and some co-workers. I guess you felt like you had to be here because you work for me. Uh, well, you'll get your reward later. Um, but this is, a, this is a short, very high view of what we did in Afghanistan. As you can see, it's rather dated. Uh, we're approaching three years of being back, and I'm very glad for that. Uh, it was a very difficult year uh, for many reasons, a lot of challenges, uh, but because of the friendship that you know, people like you and I had, uh, we were able to make it, make it through it, and I think we made a difference over there today. So I'm going to first start off with the slide here, uh, show a quick video that, again, is rather dated, um, and then we'll get into the discussion of what you and I, you and I did. So the, the overall slide shows uh, the organizational structure that we found ourselves in in Afghanistan. Uh, there is the, what we call the kinetic fight, which is U.S. forces Afghanistan or, or U.S. 4 Alpha. Uh, that wasn't us. We were the other side. We were, um, as it says up there, NATO training mission. Uh, the American side of that was the Combined Security Transition Command Afghanistan, or as we would say, C-Sticka. And then within that, that was the entire training side of uh, and mentoring side of uh, what we were and, and still are doing in Afghanistan. You had the air power piece, and that's NATO Air Training Command Afghanistan. We were uh, in the wing. Matter of fact, I'll go to the next slide. Oh, yes. The disclaimers. Everything I say is made up by me and Tay, so you can't take that to the main. So there, there's our hero shot. Uh, Tay was the uh, J7, the chief of engineering, uh, civil engineering, and he was responsible for the infrastructure build throughout Afghanistan for the Afghan Air Force. Uh, a lot of work there, building runways and Kwanzaa huts and things like that. Uh, I was the J5 chief uh, in charge of strategic plans, responsible for really the aircraft build. What were the requirements that we had? What aircraft did we need? How many of them did we uh, have to procure? Uh, and, and we'll get into that. So we actually worked very closely together because in order to bed down those aircraft, I had to have air, air bases ready to take them. And we're going to talk through a little bit of that. But I'm going to sh show a quick video that was released back in June of uh, 2011. Uh, intentionally, we're kind of sh sharing information that's rather dated because we're just sharing our experiences. You can go to a website. Uh, to find out what's going on with uh, NACA today. Well, let me show you what we were doing back when we left.
Training Command, Afghanistan, 438th Air Expeditionary Wing includes coalition partners from the U.S., Canada, Croatia, Jordan, Czech Republic, Hungary, Mongolia, Portugal, and the U.K., with more countries pledging their support. The wing has three expeditionary advisory groups, the 438th in Kabul, the 738th in Kandahar, and the 838th in Shindan. There are currently two Afghan Air Force wings, in Kabul and Kandahar. There are four detachments, Shindan, Mazari Sharif, Herat, and Jalalabad. The NAC Commission set the conditions for a professional, fully independent, and operationally capable Afghan Air Force that meets the security requirements of Afghanistan today and tomorrow. NACA is building the Afghan Air Force by focusing on training pilots, maintainers, and all the support personnel required to operate. The Afghan Air Force is proceeding well along the path to become a professional, fully independent and operationally capable Air Force. Okay, so Tay, I'll turn it over to you. Give us a little context of uh, where we were and what we were doing. Okay, well, again, let's see, is this one? Okay. Um, thank you for coming. Um, kind of excited to be here. I know I'm an AFIT professor, but uh, hopefully what we're planning to do tonight is cultivate some questions, some thoughts, some things that you want to ask us, because we're looking forward to that question and answer period at the end. So um, to go along with the caveats about this being a snapshot between 2010 and 2011, and these are personal perspectives that myself and Colonel Strasser have. Um, I'm also going to give you one more caveat. I'm an engineer, so the things that I find that are interesting, such as construction, um, that's what I want to talk to you about, but certainly feel free to ask me questions that kind of may be off on a tangent, and we'll kind of go off on a tangent um, every once in a while tonight. Hopefully, it'll be enjoyable, it'll be worth your time here tonight. So. Let me begin with a little discussion about Afghanistan. So if you could picture um, the country, it's about the same size as Texas, um, but considerably much more geographical diversity. Um, you'll notice right in the center here, there's just extremely high mountain ranges. You know, so that obviously, as you're flying aircraft, that's a, a real issue when it comes to uh, trying to get over those. So you have to make sure that your aircraft actually can, can achieve those altitudes to uh, operate in this kind of environment. Um, most of the population is right here in Kabul. So um, out of the 31 million, uh, a large portion of those people actually live right in the center. Um, other interesting facts up here in the north and down here in the south are extremely low elevations. You think of Afghanistan as being somewhat very mountainous, very rocky, very high in elevation, but in fact, these areas are actually quite low. I mean, relative to the center part of the country, these are under, up here is probably about 16, 1700 feet above sea level. Down in the south here, where Kandahar is at, um, it's also quite low, below 2000 feet. But here in Kabul, 
uh, fortunately for us, so it didn't get very hot during the summer. It, it got hot, but uh, the elevation there was about 6,000 feet, so it stayed relatively cool. Um, the, uh, the geography and the diversity of the geography was kind of also matched by um, interesting climatic conditions, uh, if you will. And certainly as an engineer, I had to take into account things like wind. So uh, the first thing that Colonel Strasser and I discovered when we got in there is they were talking about this season called the 100 Days of Wind. Hmm. So I would draw your attention to the picture here. I think this is one of those pictures. Uh, but imagine a steady 30 to 40 mile an hour wind out of the north for 100 days nonstop. So that typically starts up around the end of May and runs through the end of September. <clears throat> Some interesting things. Um, as I'm pointing out the geography here, um, a lot of the guys that were stationed there and working logistics, working construction, they would talk about this concept or this entity called the ring road. So if you can picture that uh, there's a ring that goes around the country here kind of following the lower elevations and then working its way up here. Um, that was a primary artery for movement of supplies and equipment and people. Um, for us though, since we did an extensive amount of traveling and the roads weren't that well built up, uh, Colonel Strasser and I tended to use um, air transportation more regularly to make our site visits around the country. Um, a little bit later, I'll get into the actual locations that we're looking at, but I'm just setting the stage here for this interesting geography and uh, kind of point out some things that, that really, I think, would say constrain how we traveled and when we traveled. So with that, there you go. I really um, recommend this book. It's a Graveyard of Empires. If you want to kind of get a nice perspective of, uh, of the culture in the context that people have there and kind of the way things are and why they are that way. Um, the sense that you get from this book, um, it talks about different phases, different uh, periods in time where um, their culture has been sort of evolving and uh, adapting to the conditions that are there. So in this, um, there this graveyard of empires is really a reference to just a number of, of uh, empires that uh, have been involved, been located right there in Afghanistan. Um, and we saw some evidence of that too, especially out in the western part. You know, Herat uh, in western Afghanistan is one of the oldest cities in the world. Um, and it's a, uh, interesting to uh, consider that uh, people have been living there for thousands and thousands of years. Um, we were flying um, in that vicinity, I think, I believe it was at Chukcheron. Uh, we flew over um, kind of a, a fortress area that Alexander the Great had built. And uh, just imagine flying over the top of something like that and thinking, well, I read about him in the Bible. You know, I read about him in the history books. Um, just to be able to actually see what he had created, you know, several thousand years ago. It's just 
uh, was kind of a, it was exciting and uh, kind of hard to believe, kind of incredible. It was surreal to some extent. But uh, all of these are just different phases. And as the Afghans um, were surviving all of that, you know, those had influences on their culture. So we spent a lot of time working with the Afghans because that was our mission, um, advising them on how to sort of manage and operate and, uh, and move into the future with their own Air Force. You know, to some extent, we were trying to work ourselves out of a job, you know, once they built their capabilities up. Before you go away from this, this picture, uh, I took ah, Kay yes. when you and I uh, had our first trip to Shindan. Shindan is less than 100 miles from the Iranian border. And I snapped this picture. They have all these old Soviet aircraft pushed out into the desert, as you can see here. Uh, and that's kind of what we were building on, really building from scratch. Now, these are all Soviet-era aircraft that uh, were destroyed as the Soviets pulled out of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. We, we really didn't want to get too close to that, um, obviously, because there, there could be some safety concerns about getting into that. But this... Uh, yeah, that first trip that we took out to Shindan mm-hmm. was for a change of command. Our, one of our group commanders was leaving, and we had a new group commander, Colonel Larry Bowers, taking command there. Um, an interesting uh, situation in Shindan. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But this was in, I think this was July 17th of 2010 when we took this picture. And this is our, most of our wing staff and some of our group staff in this picture. I'd like to point out the gentleman in the center, uh, General Major, currently Major General Alvin. Um, and to his right, uh, Colonel Craig Rice, our vice wing commander. Uh, those two individuals established a vision for us and, uh, and, and made it clear and made it executable and enforced this fact that uh, that we were working side by side with the Afghans, uh, you know that that our job, even though we were not in the kinetic fight, um, we were shooting weapons that didn't have bullets. So the idea is that uh, the Afghans, if we create that capability, that competency, that they would then be able to run things on their own. But I want to point out that very clearly and very early, this is not too far after the change of command, which occurred on September 10th, I believe, of 2010. Um, So General Alvin was our commander for most of my tour and most of Colonel Strasser's Mm -hmm. tour. This was Thanksgiving. Okay, Thanksgiving (coughs) of 2010. Um, But professionalism, and again, this is really where um, we spent time getting to know, building a relationship with the Afghans, making sure, showing by example, explaining, discussing um, the, the fact that they had to be competent, that they had to be professional. Um, I mentioned that, uh, you know, in the graveyard of empires, they have been for centuries uh, surviving various, um, you know, foreign 
forces and, and international forces and in some cases internal forces, uh, but always in that mode of survival. <coughs> and so sometimes when you get really good at surviving, it may not be um, conducive to their future as a professional organization. So a lot of what we talked about was to make sure that they um, could see a more professional approach to different uh, decisions that they had to make. Uh, the command and control, obviously, uh, if you're going to have what we consider an Air Force as opposed to a flying club, um, you want to make sure that they actually can um, exert their command and control, that they can do planning, set up missions, match missions and assets. Um, so there is a, a pretty heavy focus there. And then the final uh, point here being that uh, part of that legitimacy and part of them being recognized by their neighbors as a legitimate Air Force, they needed this organic training capability. So uh, spent a lot of time out at Shindan uh, working the construction piece in support of the other pieces. Um, one thing that you don't see up here are what General Alvin told us are the four builds that all have to work in concert together to support um, the overall mission of having a fully professional Afghan Air Force. And that was the Airman build, which are the investments we made into training um, facilities and, and training organizations. Um, we had the aircraft build, which is actual, they needed those weapon systems to be able to do their missions. And there were various missions that they were performing. Um, we had the infrastructure build, which I was one of the, uh, the, the chief proponents of creating an infrastructure plan that decided, you know, what facilities we had to build, um, where they had to go, where that fit into the bigger picture. How the, in, how the facilities and the infrastructure supported the aircraft and the airmen. And the final thing, which, which is really on the professionalism, was the institution build, that the institutions would be sustainable, that uh, they wouldn't need us to be there to be able to perform their missions. When Colonel Strasser and I got there, there was about seven coalitions. Um, and these were countries that, uh, that decided, you know, to come in and uh, be a part of the mission to build this uh, Afghan Air Force. Uh, by the time we left, it expanded to 15, so it more than doubled uh, the number of coalitions that were involved. And uh, I, I say we, collectively, the we wasn't just Air Force I mean, it wasn't just U.S. forces like uh, Colonel Strasser and I, but we spent a lot of time working, let's say, with the Italians out in Shindand. The, uh, the Spanish were out at Herat. Uh, spent a lot of time with the, the Germans uh, up in Mazari Sharif. Um, and, and, and you don't see these up here because they weren't in our wing, but we were constantly working with other countries and their forces to, uh, to make sure that that things worked in concert, that we weren't working against each other, that we weren't competing for the same real estate or we weren't competing for the same airspace. Uh, there's a lot of coordination that had to happen. And uh, all of these countries had a, had a very important contribution to the overall mission of building the Afghan Air Force. Um, some of these 
you know, were, were fairly light, but some of them were um, quite robust teams. In fact, it was interesting with the, uh, the team that we had from Mongolia. Uh, it was always fun to pick them up over at the dorms and we would bus over to the, the Afghan Air Force Base where we were working. Anyway, uh, again, this is the main objective, this professional, independent, and operationally capable uh, Afghan Air Force, that, that uh, they were competent and professional in uh, making sure that they could uh, run their own Air Force instead, and you know, get to a point where we got out of the job of advising them how to do that. Great. I think I'll turn it over to Colonel Strasser at this point. There's a lot to be said uh, in the slides. Uh, we could probably spend an hour on just one of them. But the previous slide, I would say, we really depended on our coalition partners. Uh, we were training them on aircraft that were not American aircraft. Uh, you see one of them here. This is an MI-8. Some of the MI-8s, uh, well, all of them, dated back to the Soviet era, and they happened to be around. We refurbished them, maintained them, but we didn't know how to fly them. And so we depended on those for, former Soviet bloc countries uh, to donate pilots and air crew members in order to be able to even teach how to fly these hel helicopters. Uh, interesting dynamic. So this is the uh, mission of the Afghan Air Force uh, to provide uh, trained and ready airmen and soldiers to execute the critical tasks in the air in support of the Afghan National Army and the Ministry of Defense, the General Staff, and the civil authorities. I would tell you that air power has a very unique, um, is, is a unique enabler for a country, especially a country like Afghanistan that is extremely ethnically di diverse, but also geographically separated. Um, you would have people like this. I don't remember where this is. Do you? I think this is in Badakhshan. Yeah, okay. Yep, and uh, we used, we would go out, we would spread goodwill uh, is probably the best way of saying it. So this was an American-driven uh, outreach program, but we would put the Afghan airmen in the front line so that their own countrymen would see them out there helping them. And here we're giving uh, school supplies to a, a community. Uh, a helicopter comes from out of nowhere. They've never seen or, or heard of the uh, Af Afghan government. It says it down there, Jiroa, which stands for the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. They've never heard of that. They've just lived in their own little world for all their lives. An idea of a united Afghanistan is entirely foreign to them. But this, this let them know that there really was a central government, and that government was out there to help them. And this, was, this is a good example of that. So I'm, this is kind of, I call it the chiclet chart. These are a number of the um, operational capabilities that we were training the Afghans on to do on their own. Uh, and they, they were continuing to build as we were there and, and they do today. Um, I'm just going to point out a few of them. Election support, extremely important. And what you see in the back of this uh, MI8 are some blue... Um, containers that would hold ballots. And you all have probably heard of the elections that have happened in Afghanistan multiple times. That brings legitimacy to a government. Uh, by bringing the military into the mix, 
you brought some legitimacy to the actual voting because you always hear about how voting is tainted, there's extra ballots or whatever. This way we could validate that there were no extra ballots, uh, that there was security. Um, here uh, in Jalalabad, there was some great flooding and we were able to send those helicopters flown by the Afghans uh, with American help to go and, and help evacuate those citizens that would have otherwise have lost um, their, their lives. I believe in a two-day period, that was about 2,000. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it was a, there were helicopters going back and forth from Kabul. Uh, it, it really was amazing. The Selang rescue uh, was an avalanche that had happened up in the mountains. Again, went up there to rescue those who were trapped. <clears throat> um, I, I also mentioned this here, uh, the Thunder Lab. What you see right there is a MI-35. Uh, you see it over here too, for used for rotary wing close air support. But the point of the picture are all those young lieutenants right there, and what you see in the in behind them are advisors. And one of the most difficult things about uh, raising up a new air force, particularly one in Afghanistan, is the incredible illiteracy of the Afghans, not only in English, but their own language. It's amazing that they don't, can't even read and write their own language. And uh, so we would need to get them from that point to being able to read and write their own language so that they could read and write English, so that they could uh, speak the international aviation language, which is English. Uh, it was and still is a, a great challenge. And we found that if we put those lieutenants, as you see here, uh, in with the advisors standing behind them in the same dorms and made them speak English all the time, that they would actually learn. It's English immersion. That's nothing new if you've learned the language before. You know immersion is the right way to learn a language. And they were doing great. Uh, many of those uh, lieutenants were able to come to the United States and get uh, pilot training at Fort Rucker as well as uh, other uh, fixed wing bases. Uh, that is a, a great success. And I look, at, I look at them and I think of, and you probably all think the same thing, that's the future of Afghanistan. And if they're going to succeed, those lieutenants have to succeed. That's probably enough here. Sir, uh, if I go ahead. add one anecdote to that, um, you mentioned the illiteracy rate. Mm -hmm. um, so we actually gave um, the engineering battalion a third grade uh, literacy exam. And uh, we had about 25 uh, people that took the exam for the third grade literacy. Uh, three of them passed it. So... In their own language. It was in their own language. It wasn't in English. It was in um, their preferred language. I think they had they could either take it in Pashto or Dari. <clears throat> but but these people were not dumb. They were highly intelligent. The same group. Um, we were introducing them to the idea of following a checklist. So uh, the checklist, some of them got quite long. I remember one checklist was probably about five pages long, over 200 items on that list. Um, and they, most of them couldn't read the checklist, but they said, just tell us what's on the checklist. So they did that for a couple of days. They tested them a little bit, I would say maybe five days later, a week later. And uh, 
out of the over 200 plus checklist items, the most anybody got wrong was two. So they memorized the whole thing. So they're highly intelligent. They're just, their intelligence are in different areas. So, you know, in the, in the concept of this checklist, you know, we saw, you know, just because they can't read and write, um, they really are highly intelligent. Good point, and I'm going to talk about that in, uh, when we get to the aircraft build. So, as I say here, air power really brings legitimacy, uh, sovereignty to a government uh, that might otherwise not have existed. And here you can see another one of the rescues uh, at, in, during the flooding. So I'm going to turn it back over to you. You're going to tell us a little bit about the infrastructure build, and then we'll talk about the aircraft build, and then open it up for uh, questions. Okay, so um, what we're looking at in this picture is a uh, is a fabric type shelter. So basically, you install this framework, and then you stretch a fabric over the top of that. It's an expedient type of shelter system. You can set it up for aircraft maintenance, aircraft parking. In, in some cases, you can even do some sort of shop level maintenance, um, or or create it, you know, turn it into into an area where they might. Uh, <clears throat> handle other sorts of administrative needs. But anyway, it's a, it's a, a nice general purpose shelter and it goes up fairly fast. Uh, this picture was taken out at Herat and this is gonna become a, uh, a maintenance facility for the MI-17s that we had um, running there. Uh, we had in this partnership, um, and it was actually probably better explained as a conglomeration, there's just a lot of stakeholders in the construction piece of the Afghan Air Force. I list a few here, the Air Force uh, Center for Engineering and the Environment. Um, they did a lot of contracting. And they handled a lot of the uh, facility construction. The Army Corps of Engineers also did a lot of construction. And we tried to uh, um, balance the bigger projects uh, between the two construction agents. And then this, this last one, this Army Contracting Centers in Kabul and Herat typically handled some of the smaller pieces. Um, we were trying to um, sort of cultivate an organic capability for the Afghans to, to create businesses, to create jobs, put Afghans to work, get them experienced in doing construction. Um, and, and there was construction that worked well and some that didn't, but it was all learning process. And, you know, we would bring in uh, construction experts from the Army and the Air Force and the Navy. Uh, and they would stand side by side with a lot of these Afghan contractors and show them proper construction techniques, uh, make sure that uh, they weren't trying to um, do something maybe that had long-term impacts. But it was, it was constantly a learning process uh, from start to finish. There were uh, additional people at our higher headquarters that would come in and help us out with different types of, of construction, whether it was permanent facilities or maybe something a little more temporary like this fabric structure. Um, and then useful DLA and GSA had some options for some prepackaged types of constructions where you could come in really fast uh, and, and set something up to meet the mission need. Um, that was all part of this orchestration effort that we, along with our other coalition counterparts, other U.S. forces, the Afghan forces, 
trying to sequence the things so that uh, we weren't creating this fog and friction. Um, as we are doing this, you know, there's a lot of things happening, and I like to think that history informs a lot of what we do with making decisions. So um, I uh, point your attention to the picture of General Mitchell. Um, and if you recall uh, from your study of the history how he had to convince his contemporaries and his superiors about what's the proper role of the U.S. Air Force, and this is in the 20s, okay? Well, we're revisiting that all over again uh, with the Afghan Air Force. What is the proper mission of the Afghan Air Force? You know, some people would think that the Afghan Air Force should do this, you know, more or less be like an air taxi service for the ground forces. There, there was that school of thought. Um, but, you know, to really look at the strategic implications of an Air Force, what its mission was, what they were capable of, what they were capable of sustaining as these different types of missions, I saw a lot of parallels to the kind of arguments and discussions that General Mitchell was having back in the 20s, you know, with the Afghan Air Force general who was talking with his contemporaries about what the Afghan Air Force should be doing for the country's national security interests. And as we are looking at tactics, I, I put up this picture here of the Air Corps Tactical School. You know, at that time in the early 30s when we're trying to really um, lock in on what are the particular mission sets that we need to have, we're having that same kind of discussion with the Afghans that we were advising about what is their proper mission set? You know, do they go in for um, more or less an, an airlift, you know, as a preeminent mission set? Or are they looking at close air support? Um, what's the right balance there? So in that, um, we're starting to build up these school of thoughts. They're starting to evolve as far as what is the mission? that the Afghans should have. In the center here, um, you'll see one of the bigger tragedies that the Air Force has had out at Pope Air Force Base. Um, and and I, I bring that to your attention because that was an issue, I, for the most part, of having um, slow movers and fast movers in the same traffic pattern. Well, we had that same conversation when we're talking about what is the mission out at Shindan Air Base, um, you know there was the uh, the folks that were that were fighting the insurgents, and, and a lot of that was coalition and U.S. forces. You know they had some highly operational, highly capable pilots operating high-performance aircraft, and that was on one side of the base. On the other side of the base, we had the Afghans who are just now learning how to fly, and they're flying these aircraft that are very forgivable, but it's to build that technique to be able to fly. And uh, to be able to separate those patterns, the, the trainers from these high performance, very kinetic type of aircraft, um, we actually talked about what happened at Pope Air Force Base. You know, and we said, you know, you really need to separate these traffic patterns. You know, if there's something that a student does and makes a mistake, that could tie things up if you're launching and recovering these uh, offensive aircraft from that same airfield. So those are just 
various examples, various anecdotes of how history informed a lot of our decision-making. So here's another map. Um, I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I want to point out the, the implications, the, the geostrategic implications of the location of Afghanistan. You see all of these countries, these former Soviet bloc countries. Um, also, you have a connection to China, Pakistan, and India is actually fairly close. And as we're spending a lot of time out here in Shindan, uh, the proximity to Iran is uh, is an eye opener, you know, to know that you were that close to Iran. But uh, as I point out some of the symbology here on this chart, the stars were all the places where um, Colonel Strasser and I actually were able to take smaller teams to go out and establish um, plans in concert with the Afghans about, you know, where are the proper places to have our infrastructure. So if you notice here in Kabul and Kandahar, we have our two main wings, Afghan wings. Um, and if you look out here, um, this is Shindan right here. And that, that location is the what we would consider the undergraduate pilot training, the UPT base for the Afghan Air Force. Uh, at Herat, at uh, Mazar-e-Sharif, at Jalalabad, and at Gardez were the, the four air units that we had. And then all of these other places with either the circles or the other stars, those are what we consider air units. And each build is slightly different than the other. Um, the wings have the same kind of structure that we typically see with our wings, where you have runway and you have maintenance facility and operational facility and mission support facilities and it's a, it's a large operation that happens. The detachments are much smaller, just a handful of aircraft that are kind of forward deployed from these main wings to uh, handle just smaller term missions, but sustainable. And then the air units that kind of circle the country with a couple right down the center, Bamiyam and Chagcharan, um, those are what we consider pit stops little gas stations uh, filled with about 60 Afghans that would be there to handle just what we consider transient aircraft, aircraft that weren't permanently assigned there. But we did a lot of traveling, and most of our travel teams were fairly small. We'd typically fly on an M17, MI-17, and we'd have uh, planners like Colonel Strasser and I. We'd have our interpreters, um, there, there was a, an important mission that we had contractors there that kind of help augment us a little bit. So they'd be part of that. And then typically the Afghans would be a part of that team. And then we'd go out to these locations and we would find typically coalition forces um, ready and willing to, to help us to talk about long-term plans of how today's mission will allow for future mission of the Afghan Air Force. Can you all hear me from here? Yeah? Okay, I'm going I'm to stay up here. Uh, interesting, uh, in the previous uh, chart, the intersection of the operational mission from the U.S. Uh, for Alpha perspective and our training mission, 
there were multiple times where we were trying to bed down the Afghan Air Force in a particular location, and the the uh, local Army commander, U.S. Army commander, would say, you're not doing that. I've got a mission to do. And I will never forget one briefing we went and we had our, our Air Force four-star uh, sitting, or two-star sitting there, sorry, looking at the Army one-star, uh, and he told him, no, you're not going to tell me how to uh, do air power. We are going to bed down the Afghan Air Force here because it had to happen. We had to, at some point, move the op- our operational mission out and move the Afghans in. And that where those two intersected was a lot of friction, uh, interesting dynamic. So I'm going to uh, end up here in the next uh, couple minutes talking about the aircraft build. Uh, that was essentially my responsibility. Uh, we were starting from what was the remnants of the old Soviet empire. And some of those aircraft were still somewhat airworthy. Uh, you see the AN-26, uh, that's an AN-32, essentially the same uh, type of uh, tactical uh, cargo aircraft. MI-24s that we refurbished in the MI-35s, uh, gunships. There weren't, weren't very many of those. Uh, but really the bread and butter for the Afghan Air Force were the helicopters, uh, the MI-8s, which we refurbished into MI-17s. Uh, they were uh, uniquely um, capable in that part of the world. Uh, as Tay said, the high altitudes are, are difficult for aircraft, and they were able to do that. They, they would take a lot of abuse and keep working. And then what you see there is an L-39 on the, uh, the lower right-hand side. They only had three of those aircraft when I were there, and you can see there's a tarp over it. It was the only jet aircraft of the Afghan Air Force. Uh, if you were to ask the Afghans what they really want, they want F-16s. But what they really need are uh, these MI-17s. So we were really focusing on their need, uh, not what, not their wants. And so we never actually did anything with those L-39s. They were never airworthy because they didn't need to be. Uh, so this was uh, my organization's strategic plans. We were responsible for the requirements of the aircraft build. Uh, we developed the uh, bed-down plan for the Afghan Air Force, uh, coordinated uh, with multiple U.S. government agencies for support, and made sure everyone was in alignment, which was extremely difficult. Tay discussed that a little bit. There are so many agencies just sitting there uh, in Afghanistan that making sure everybody knows who's in charge and which way we're going is a, is a job in and of itself, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think it requires a master's degree to figure out the spaghetti organization. <laughs> but, um, There's no doubt about there it. Was, there was some functionality there. I, I, I put it there. Uh, we had multiple uh, program offices from different services. I had NAVIPO, which was the Navy. Uh, I had a um, non-standard rotary wing from the Army. Uh, we had, at the time, Aeronautical Systems Center. Now, uh, Brenda Colton's here. She's the uh, last program manager. A uh, lot of people trying to bring a line so that our requirements are being met. And many of those were real-time. Hey, where are the parts for my aircraft? And as you can see, the bottom line there, acquisition professionals, that, that's a foot stomper. When you, when you go into a country and you try to rebuild it, you don't think about Let's bring the acquisition professionals in. Let's bring people who know a little bit about requirements and uh, running a program and getting on contract. 
that's not usually the first thing you think of, but you really need to get them in early. I would say even here we were a little bit behind the power curve, and uh, that's a, a definite lesson learned. So the folks that you see there on the bottom are all the folks who worked for me. There's uh, two uh, uh, sailors in that mix uh, and one lieutenant colonel, majors uh, for the rest. I think there was a captain in there. We were working all those acquisition issues. So the strategy that we used was crawl, walk, run. And as you see, the crawl was kind of the start, working from what we had. Uh, the walk was training them to be able to do what we could do as an Air Force. And then the run is that independence, being able to do it by themselves. The way we said it in NACA was for, with, and by. We do it for them, we'll do it with them, and then they will do it by themselves. Um, we had a, a term, which is Dari, called Shona Bashona, which means shoulder, shoulder to shoulder, right? And, and that was kind of the whole with idea. We're going to do this together, you know, lock arms and go forward. Uh, certainly the crawl I've, I've already alluded to, to use the fragments of the previous Air Force. And to go to what Tay said, the reason we, we use the MI-17 is because that's what the Afghans knew. They had the entire checklist memorized for flying that aircraft. They couldn't read the checklist, but they knew it in their heads, and they've known it for a decade. So why change that? That's a good starting point. But if you're going to go further, that's where some of the English training has to come in. Uh, and so the, the early efforts we had were to refurbish and overhaul and repair um, what serviceable equipment we could find. In the lower right-hand corner, you'll see an amazing picture, and I always thought this was interesting. That's an uh, Antonov-124 Condor. Is that right, Condor? I think so. Um, it's essentially the, the Ukrainian C-5, and you can see it's actually kneeling. The front of it's actually almost on the ground. And what we're doing is we're stuffing one of the old MI-17s into it to go back to the Ukraine uh, to get depot overhauled, and then it would come back a number of months later uh, freshly refurbished and ready to fly. So here, here we have a, a Soviet aircraft uh, owned by the Afghan Air Force being put into a Ukrainian aircraft paid by the U.S. Air Force. Uh, and I always thought that was an interesting. And it was amazing to see that airplane land uh, multiple times to bring us uh, new aircraft or take away the old ones. That was truly amazing. Um, on the walk piece... Uh, focus on proven maintenance, training, and operational procedures. That is a, a large amount of what we did as advisors. Uh, develop that discipline that you talked about, Tay. Um, discipline and professionalism is something we had to work on every single day with the Afghan Air Force. Uh, developing operational capability, meaning the things that you would do with an Air Force, uh, teaching them to be able to do those things like close air support, or a casualty evacuation from the battlefield. And then that whole transition to a modern Air Force, uh, I put that in quotes, uh, being able to use the, the, uh, the modern tools of a modern Air Force, certainly. And then the independence, being able to self-sustain, being able to be operationally relevant in the environment that they find themselves and be highly skilled is, is the goal. So here's some of our plans in action. Uh, the MIA, I've already talked about the HIP overhaul to the MI-17, most familiar to the old guard Air Force. 
Uh, certainly was the workhorse helicopter best suited for the Afghan terrain. Um, we augmented that aircraft with uh, a new version called the Mi-17 V-5. You've already seen a couple pictures. I can grab my water bottle there. Yeah. <coughs> Thank you. Some of the pictures I showed you up front uh, with helicopters going out uh, in evacuation missions, those were Mi-17 V-5s. What's interesting about those, uh, U.S. dollars going to the Russian government to buy those helicopters uh, for our mission was uh, interesting in and of itself. <coughs> Excuse me. The uh, MI-35 was the gunship, as I've already shown you. Uh, we were going to transition that mission to the light air support aircraft. We could talk uh, more about that, but that was kind of a transition to a modern airframe. And then, of course, the AN-32 uh, gave you that tactical airlift capability, and I have some pictures of this here in a moment. Uh, the idea was that we would trans transition to the C-27. Uh, we could also have an interesting discussion about that. The C-27 really was an Italian G222, which was 30 years old, that we went out and we procured. Uh, we procured 20 of them, and they, that uh, was a transitional aircraft for us to get to something bigger. And uh, I understand uh, in the fall, two uh, C-130s were actually delivered to the Afghan Air Force. Uh, I wasn't there when that happened. I wasn't there when that decision was made, but we certainly discussed it at great length. So as you can see, the aircraft build really focused on air mobility for the very reasons I told you about at the beginning of the briefing. Um, it's a key enabler for the entire government to bring cohesiveness to what, what the government is bringing to its own people. So uh, the, other, the other side of what we were doing from the aircraft build was actually uh, instituting organic training. So you saw some of those lieutenants uh, in the Thunder Lab that I showed you. They were getting their flight training uh, in the United States. That proved problematic for a number of reasons. Uh, you had to achieve a certain English score to be able to get over here. Um, and sometimes it was hard to make that score, and yet you had people who probably could fly some of these uh, aircraft if they just had an instructor who would enable them to do that without having come to the United States. Some actually went AWOL. That was a problem. You know, when you come from Afghanistan and you come to the United States, it's a lot better over here, I guarantee you. And they knew it. Uh, and some of them, I think, may still be here. I'm not so sure. Uh, but, but they know that. <coughs> Let's, it would be better to keep them in Afghanistan. Uh, it, it obviously it would be quicker. And so uh, none of these aircraft were there when I was there, but I had a, uh, my thumbprints on each one of them. It's, it's one of uh, the things that I'm most proud of as we went down the road of trying to define what aircraft do we need, when do we need them, where do they need to go, uh, working with the program offices to get them. Uh, the helicopter, in specifically, that's, the, that's an MD-530, and if any of you have seen Black Hawk Down, you'll recognize that as the Little Bird, uh, a plant painted all black, and, and you'll understand. Uh, but uh, great aircraft, but the Army wanted us to buy something else. They wanted us to buy the UH-72, which is not, did not have the capabilities that we needed to do training. For instance, it would not auto-rotate because it had a, uh, uh, the, the blades were, were too rigid and you just couldn't do that. Something you need to do uh, when you're teaching rotary wing uh, uh, flying operations. Uh, so we were able to move that whole operation and move it towards something that we really need, and we focused on our requirements. 
Uh, and before I left, we got on, uh, not us, but the non-standard rotary wing program office actually went on contract with MD helicopter for this helicopter, and it was delivered many months later. Uh, that's actually in Afghanistan. Uh, the uh, lower right-hand corner, you'll see what looks like a traditional Cessna. Many of you probably have flown that aircraft. That's a Cessna 182 rather than a 172. It has a souped-up engine for the higher altitude. But that's the plane that they used for um, uh, undergraduate pilot training. And if you were staying fixed wing, you would graduate to what's on the left, that, that caravan, the C-208. Uh, both of those aircraft, by the way, were proven in Iraq. Uh, my deputy happens to be here. He did that aircraft build in Iraq, and they bought those very aircraft. Uh, and so we were modeling those aircraft builds off and requirements off of what we did in Iraq, and it was highly successful. What you also get with the uh, caravan is um, some light lift. We called that aircraft the light lift aircraft. Uh, you can put uh, a casualty or two, I think, in, into that aircraft and, and get them to a, a, a field hospital. And that is one of the operational capabilities that I understand is, is actually ongoing right now. So uh, giving them that capability and then transitioning this training to the Afghan, so you actually have Afghan instructors teaching Afghan new students, really will help us minimize our footprint in Afghanistan. Um, I believe this is uh, one of my last slides, so hang in there. We're almost done. So a uh, number of challenges, as you might suspect. Uh, working with the uh, Russian procurement system was uh, new and interesting and had its own challenges. They don't play by the same rules that U.S. companies play by. Um, how do you make a contract uh, with a Russian uh, company that we've been forbidden from uh, having? But... Uh, it happened, and we bought 21 MI-17s to augment the MI-17 force there. Uh, we, by the way, did talk about what about transitioning to a modern American helicopter, but the only modern American helicopter that would be suitable would be the Chinook. Uh, much greater cost, uh, much greater skill to fly, and uh, I don't know that that's actually in the plans anymore. We, we decided not to go down that road. Airworthiness was a, a significant challenge for us. In, in the acquisition world, our, our engineers will look at an aircraft, look at the, the parts of the aircraft, make determinations on the life of those parts, those parts that are uh, safety of flight, uh, and say that aircraft is worthy to be flown by an American airman. Very hard to do that when you have a Russian uh, helicopter or a Russian aircraft or an Italian aircraft like the uh, G222, where we don't have the plans, we don't know how they were built, and we don't know how they were flown for the last 10 years. So how much life is left in those aircraft? That was a real, real head-scratcher for us. U.S. instructors on, and maintainers on foreign aircraft, we don't fly MI-17s in the United States Air Force generally. Uh, we don't have a, a great cadre of uh, instructor pilots. So as I mentioned, bringing in some of the coalition partners really helped there. The problem with that is the way the Soviets did things and the way we do things from a, uh, operating an aircraft are very different. Maintaining is very different. Uh, we record things differently. They had things called passports. Each little part had its own passport. If you didn't have it, you didn't know what, what the history of that part was. 
Uh, it was very challenging for us. Imagine trying to teach that to the Afghans. Um, so teaching the language of the international aviation, English, so very challenging. Um, the pilots were a little, generally were the, those uh, Afghans that were a little bit more proficient, more educated, but the maintainers were the ones who really needed to know English because they are the ones who would take the tech orders, read those tech orders, and, and make the change or, or maintain the aircraft. If you can't do that, then what are you going to do? And you might say, well, just translate all the tech orders into Dari uh, or Pashtu. Huge effort. And those, those languages are not technical langu languages. So um, crowbar and Dari is crowbar. So, I mean, how do you write that out? It's very difficult. Uh, and, and, and then once you actually do the translation, how do you know they got it right? So those were all great challenges. Um, the supply chain and the restrictions. Um, the, the C-27 is a good example, uh, a 30-year-old aircraft that nobody flies anymore. We had a real problem with the propellers. We were running out of propellers, and nobody had them. So what do you do? You, you, you're stuck. You, you can go back and have the manufacturer, who is Hamilton Sunstrand, remanufacture re those, but it takes a whole year just to get on contract and get that uh, going again and it, at an exorbitant cost. Um, same type of issues with the Soviet aircraft. Who's building those parts? Where are they coming from? There's a big black market out there for parts. And how do you know they're good parts? And they're not just going to break as soon as you put them on the aircraft. So, um, And then the requirements generation and, and certification. Uh, I put that on there because if you're in the acquisition community, you know that requirements are your lifeblood. And oftentimes you'll be told by the user, well, I want this, but we'll come to you and say, but you told us this. Sometimes your needs and wants are not always the same. And, it, and we try to do that translation. This was handled as a foreign military sales. But of course, the Afghan government has no dollars to buy anything with, so we gave them those dollars, or we carved out a satchel of dollars that we told was theirs, and they don't get to spend it. We spend it for them. And it was called pseudo-FMS. And so we played by the FMS rules, which means a requirement is whatever we put on a piece of paper as a letter of requ uh, requirement, or, uh, and, or LORs, we would say, uh, and then we would have we would go from there. Um, we, we didn't necessarily follow the, the system that we would follow in our own country where we would go through a process that those requirements are boarded and it goes all the way up to the, uh, the Joint Chiefs and everybody says, yes, this is the right requirement for our, our country. And so uh, that process, I think, led us down some primrose paths. Uh, it really uh, was dependent on the professionals that were deployed to put together what, the best that we could because we could never really go to the Afghans and ask them, what do you want? We really needed to tell them what they needed and what we were going to give to them. Uh, and someday their planning would get to the point where probably they could do normal foreign military sales type of things. But um, planning, and I don't have it here, but planning is not something that I found they did a very, very good job at. And, and so we, they needed our help there. Uh, and that kind of goes to the command and control that, that you talked about. I really am wrapping it up here. So lessons learned, English language training, I've mentioned that. 
building an Air Force takes a generation. I showed you those lieutenants. We need to be committed to those airmen because those will be the generals in 30 years or less. And, and we need to be committed. We, we've done that uh, in other countries before, Korea, Japan, Germany. Um, it, you can't just give them the tools and give them some training and expect that they're going to be able to do it by themselves. Uh, and we learned that in spades. Um, I would say, this is my own personal observation, using aircraft that the U.S. Air Force is also operating has some great advantages. Um, sometimes it can be more costly. Uh, but, for instance, a C-130 is a good example. They're now flying the C-130. There is a, a supply chain out there to, to uh, fix C-130s. Uh, and uh, another country like Afghanistan can benefit from that instead of trying to fly an aircraft that there are no parts anymore. Uh, unique aircraft have unique challenges, and there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, and I've already talked about how important it is to have acquisition professionals uh, early in the process. So despite frustrations, the Afghan Air Force continues to grow. Uh, I've, uh, Tay and I have both followed what they've been doing over the last few years, and, and they're headed in the right direction. They're doing more things than they're ever able to do in places that we never even dreamed of. But we're going to end the brief really kind of on a somber note because this was not a uh, sit at your desk, uh, do your job, and go home and, and enjoy being in your, in your billeting. Um, we were in great danger, and uh, while Tay and I were there, nine of our coworkers were shot uh, just across the street from us where we did our advising every single day. Um, Thankfully, Tay wasn't there. You probably would have been there, but he was on his R&R. &R. He, he got back two days after that happened. Um, I actually took off from the United States while this was happening. So, And uh, so uh, men and women who we worked with every single day lost their lives all uh, in, in one morning on the 27th of April, 2011. I'll never forget that day. Uh, friends of, of ours... Uh, it was a, what we call a green on blue attack, and it, you've probably heard a lot of those happening where those that we have trained have turned the weapons on us. Uh, I don't know why that happens. I have my ideas. Um, I won't share them here. But it was a very hard time, and those families have suffered greatly, as you might suspect. So it is, it is dangerous over there. So uh, that's wrapping it up. Tay, did you have any closing remarks? Um. No, sir, but I, I thought if people were interested, I have like just a couple of short video clips. We could kind of share a little bit what it's like to be on an MI-17 um, and hear that engine, that whine, and get kind of a, a feel, if you will, of, of how it is to be on board the aircraft and, and then watch it take off. And so It's yeah, very bumpy. That was just a short clip of us leaving Herat. Um, it was interesting. We uh, typically flew fairly low, and I know the guys out there in the western part of the country flew a little lower than they normally did. Um, ran into some problems. It wasn't uncommon when we land that we would find bullet holes in our aircraft. Um, was shocked one time when I heard about uh, one of our aircraft actually took an RPG in the tail boom. Um, but the, uh, the aircraft was resilient. It uh, kept going, and it didn't, uh, 
it did, there wasn't any issues other than everybody was uh, moving away from the aircraft upon landing very quickly. Uh, I would say too, this is a picture of just looking out the door of a, of a helicopter at Shindan and uh, it, was, it was really, I don't know, mornings there are phenomenal. Uh, I always enjoyed the mornings, one, because we were usually getting up early to meet an aircraft, to go someplace, and there was always that, that anticipation of looking forward to doing something positive with the Afghans, kind of getting a step closer to that ultimate goal of, of having a professional and competent Air Force. Um, so there's a lot of hope in, in getting up early in the morning, and typically the winds were a little lower in the morning. So I, just, I was always happy to be jumping on an aircraft early in the morning. <clears throat> 